every parent's prayer. Thank you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of weeping. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. Well, my task this morning is to give you an introduction to your summer series, The Psalms of Ascent, which I've entitled Footholds for the Ascent. So for the last 25 years, I've been using the Psalms as a tool to give people a voice, to process their pain, and to articulate their thanksgiving and praise to God for the grace in their lives. And I'm always surprised by the power of poetry, especially in a church of uh, software engineers, how poetry transcends pain and brings God's presence near like nothing else does. So today I'm privileged to launch you on your pilgrimage. And a pilgrimage is much like a thrilling yet very dangerous ascent up a mountain. And I've always been captivated by mountains. And uh, when I was a Stanford student in Italy, when I got there, all the students <coughs> wanted to go to Rome. I said, Rome? Are you kidding? Do you know what's north? So at one in the morning, I got on a train all by myself. And at 8 a.m., I was at Zermatt skiing on a snow-capped glacier. <coughs> the next weekend, everybody went back to Switzerland. And when I was there, the woman who was the head of my chalet said, you know, why don't you come back and climb the Matterhorn? And uh, I thought, wow. So I came back in July, and I arrived at 3.30 in the afternoon. Immediately she grabbed me. <laughs> she said, we've got to go now. I go, what? So she took me to the store. You need these necessities. You've got to have a guide who knows the way. You've got to have a rope. And then you have this carabiner to make sure you're connected to the rope and to your guide. So I got in this chairlift, and you take the chairlift all the way to the top, and, it, and you end up at 8,373 feet at the Schwartzy Cable Car Station. Let's go to the next slide. And uh, it was a very painful beginning because I had come from Florence, which was sea level, and I wasn't accustomed to breathing at that altitude. So I barely made the <clears throat> hike of 2,000 feet and the three-hour hike up to the base camp, and then I ate snow and I got a little altitude sickness. And then I met my guide. And then you also passed the graveyard where everybody died who didn't make it is up to encourage you. And uh, this was the first clear day in 88 days. And the following week it was so cold four people did die. They couldn't hang on. So I discovered all I had to do was to follow my guide's footsteps and to stay anchored to him. And then I discovered at the top that there were already ropes anchored in because someone had gone before to make our climb easier. And then you arrive at the summit. So you start at 3 a.m. You're at the summit by 8. And then you start taking in the marvelous vistas. I mean, you see all the way across Switzerland to St. Moritz. You see the glacier I skied on. And then there's this moment of reflection as you're looking at the vistas, you realize when you're up there that the quiet, irresistible force of this massive glacier is what impacts Earth. And all the cares of heaven don't get up here. That heaven has more impact on Earth than Earth does on heaven. 
And if you liken this to our life's journey, the question is, we have all these ups and downs in life. We face depression, pain, unemployment, death, stress. So where do we find a guide, a rope, and a carabiner to get through the journey? How do we connect with God? And how do we know when we're praying, because you can't see him, if what you're praying is according to God's will? How do you know your prayers are going to be answered? What do you do when you pray all night for your son to live and you have a whole prayer meeting of people and he dies in two days? Well, the gift to us is the book of Psalms. And their Psalms record 1,000 years of the prayers of Israel's people. And originally these were the prayers of Israel's king who was bringing forth the kingdom both in breadth among the nations and in depth among his people. And God invited him to pray in Psalm 2 that that's the way you bring God's rule from heaven to earth. And the neat thing about these uh, prayers is that every one of them works. Go to the next slide. And if you start taking the journey, you discover there's sort of a cadence in the ascent. So David told the Israelites to write psalms of lament, which is giving grief a voice. There's 53 of those. Psalms of thanksgiving, which is once God has answered his prayers. So God has a legal obligation to save his king. The king had a legal obligation to cry out. Every single lament is answered. And then there's praise, which is just taking in the vistas and praising God as the beautiful creator and the creator. So in the mountain climbing terminology, you can see that the word distress is a narrow place. And no matter where you are on the mountain, even when you've betrayed God into a narrow place or you're facing stuff, you articulate your lament. And then thanksgiving is once God saved the king, he had a legal obligation to come back to the congregation and offer thanksgiving, not to give public thanks with sin. And then praise is just raving about the character of God, taking in the vistas when you're my age and you look back over 40 years and you're just raving to your grandkids of how faithful God's been. And this is the rhythm of life. So I'm a little naive. I think if this is the way God speaks to us in poetry. He actually has two ways of speaking to really get to the heart. Narrative, stories, and poems. And I didn't know much about poetry. It's a other story. I won't go into it, but God took me to Romania to meet a poet who was in prison for 17 years. And I saw his 10,000 poems changing the face of this nation as the people sang. And I thought, we're missing something in the West. And this is what gave me my passion. So today, um, I get to introduce this collection of the Psalms of Ascent. And there are different Psalms, but the way that they were collected, it does have a structure. So the first four set you on your journey, leaving your home of alienation, making your way, and you're into Jerusalem quickly with a blessing, and then you're in the, underneath God's throne in the cherubim. The last four are your work of engagement, of doing spiritual formation disciplines. So the first four and the last four are active. The seven in the middle are all reflective, taking in the vistas. The first three of those look back to your past journey. 
The last three look forward, anticipating your future journey, and the center psalm of them all is 127, a wisdom song about the Lord who blesses our house. So that's a brief outline. And these psalms were sung three times a year during the great three feasts. And so three times a year, our Hebrew forefathers reminded themselves who they were and where they were going over and over and over again. And it's my task, as long as I live, to get people to sing the psalms in entirety and to write their own, as Ephesians says, making psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in community. So Psalm 120, it's a short psalm. It starts with a confident cry to God. It ends with a lament, and in the middle is a warning to his adversaries. So looking at the cry and the lament, to the Lord in my distress, I call and he answers me. O Lord, rescue me from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Woe to me, for I sojourned in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So this journey that sets us up on pilgrimage starts with a woe, an impassioned cry reflecting despair, because for too long our pilgrim has lived as an alien world, and he names them Meshech and Kedar. And Meshech was a far-off tribe, thousands of miles to the north of Israel by the Caspian Sea, in what is now Russia. The descendants of Meshech were a warlike, barbarous people, well known for their economic expertise and military might. They were shrewd traders, exporting slaves and copper, with Tyre, the capital of Phoenicia, and their great military might posed a constant threat to Israel from the north. Kedar was Israel's neighbor to the south. They descended from the sons of Ishmael, and as were such, they were implacable enemies to Israel. In fact, in Arabic, Qadir means to possess power, and for four centuries, they were the most powerful tribe within the Ishmaelite confederacy. In the late 17th century, the prophet Jeremiah called them a proud desert power. And here they're portrayed as bloodthirsty Bedouins who refuse to negotiate for peace. So here's Meshech in the north and Kedar in the south are sort of archetypal labels of a total warlike world that surrounds us where we feel like we're outsiders, foreigners, aliens in a world so distant from God in his ways, and we say, what are we doing here? Now, I'm sure you're no stranger to the news, but the longer I live, the more I feel like an alien in a world that is so bent on war, building walls, nationalism, throwing out deceitful, hateful rhetoric. There's no dialogue anywhere. No treating people as human beings. Remember the one time I got flack, well, I get flack a lot for preaching, but one time I got hit is when I took notice for the Republicans for their just total dismissal of all the refugees from Syria. And I got a friend that lives in Aleppo and that all those Armenians that get persecuted and he was responsible for getting him into Canada but just with the stroke of the pen we don't want to have anything to do with it. We don't want to risk vulnerability to love refugees. And yet that's our identity. So why would God have his people 
live in such an alien world. Well, Rabbi Eleazar said, God scattered Israel among the nations for the sole end that they should wax, proselytes should wax numerous among them. And Rabbi Hillel said to the Jews of the diaspora, be one of the disciples of Aaron following after peace, loving mankind and drawing them to the law. But our poet discovered that being a peacemaker is not very promising, doesn't seem to exert any influence. And we know from history that as one generation succeeded another, far from becoming more amenable to the God of peace, these nations became more hostile to Israel. A 5th century Egyptian inscription talks about one of the kings of Kedar, Geshem, the Arabian, who may have been the same king who became Nehemiah's starch adversary. Every time Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the wall, Geshem vehemently opposed him. Later in the wheels of history, the founder of Islam, Muhammad, traced his lineage back to Ishmael through Kedar. And from Mishik comes the prince of Gog, who raises an army so great that it's compared to a cloud covering the land to destroy the quiet people who dwell securely. No wonder the pilgrim feels like he's had enough. So how do you respond in an evil world? Well, there's two wrong responses. One is the monastery approach. We'll just create our own little Christian conclave, Christian schools, Christian bowling alleys, Christian, Christian, and just hide behind walls that are safe. Or in living among them, you end up becoming like them, and if they manipulate, you manipulate too. But none of those are an option for followers of Jesus. The pain of the pilgrim here is that this lament launches him to God, and it's yes to God in pilgrimage, and he writes a psalm of lament. So sick of lies and crippled by hate, the poet's pain penetrates him through despair and invigorates him to venture out of his world to a pilgrimage to meet God. And this is the prod that gets him going. It's harsh, it's discordant, but it gets things started. So in this poem, the first image is distress, the last word is war. And it's in the midst of these moments you realize you're really made for something better. We're all longing for a city whose architect and builder is God. The world is not as as it should be, and we have a legal obligation to cry out in prayer. And God has a legal obligation to save us and to make it new. So Eugene Peterson writes, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think that the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might push us over the edge of anxiety into the life of tranquility, we're not likely to risk the arduous uncertainty of a pilgrimage of faith. A person has to be fed up with the world before he or she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. So he laments and exposes his grief to God. Now sometimes you can find alienation within your own family. Elie Wiesel, one of the greatest writers to emerge from the Holocaust, begins his personal memoirs with a very surprising admission. He says, I never really knew my father. They were together in Auschwitz. They died together. He says, the truth is, 
It hurts to admit it, but it would hurt him even more if I deluded myself. The truth is I knew little of the man I loved the most in the world, the man whose most merest glance could stir me. And I'd have to say the same about my dad. Uh, As a young boy, I felt I was the apple of my dad's eye. I danced in his shadow. I was proud to wear his name, sit in the shade of his glory. There was no greater joy in life than pleasing my father. He was a renowned surgeon in Los Angeles. I was his only son, the youngest of four children. We had two born before World War II, two after with a war in between. But like Elie Wiesel, I never really knew him. He was a quiet man, a silent man. I used to have a joke that he had three words in his vocabulary, huh, what, and huh. All three were complete sentences designed to put the initiative back on the inquirer. And as children, we would always wondered what he thought, what stirred his inner life. He was a voracious reader, a passionate methodical worker, but natural conversation was rare. His thoughts were like hidden under a wry smile that reminded me of the Mona Lisa. Perhaps his greatness as a surgeon hampered his communication stills and the ability to enter into our ordinary worlds. For years, I never thought it bothered me. I was just proud to be his son. Then the day came when I brought him grave disappointment. I was in college, just become a Christian, and I was passionately plunged into my new faith, and I felt a possible change in vocation from economics and business to maybe being an intern at Peninsula Bible Church, which to him was like a cult. So I wrote my father from Europe, and I told him about it. It was a Father's Day letter, told him how much I loved him as a dad, and now I'd met my Heavenly Father, and I wanted to follow him as well. And I kept waiting for his reply, and he never wrote back. Finally, my mother sent a postcard several weeks later with a little byline at the end that said, Knock off your religion. Your father's worried. Those words communicated a mountain of emotion. And what happened, he went to the dinner at Father's table, and he held up my letter, and he said, I've lost my one only son. That was the day the wall went up between us, and it went up for 20 years. Our wedding was not a happy occasion. You can see the picture. My folks on the right. Emily's folks hadn't seen each other since they were divorced, so they weren't real happy. And uh, my folks thought the pastor who was marrying us was a cult leader and kicked him out of the house before the rehearsal dinner. Neither my dad and I could talk about pain or emotion, and so... We lived in active silence, but I still hoped maybe one day. A few years later, my wife and I gave birth to our firstborn, a son, and I named him David Jonathan, the beloved gift of God. And deep down, I hoped that, because my dad always wanted a son, that maybe my grandson would kind of melt his heart. But after just a few days, he became very sick. And as the prognosis turned grim, I called my dad, but I couldn't talk, (laughs) and I needed him. And he came up, he and my mom, to see our son days before he died. And instead of comforting words and tears, all my father could do was, as he left, he put his hand inside of mine, it was a $100 bill, and then he left. They didn't stay for the memorial service. I'll learn later how deeply hurt he was, but he was just never able to express his emotions. And the following year, our daughter suffered the same fate. 
So later, by miracle, we were able to have healthy daughters. And I remember when Katie was 13, I took her to the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. And in the movie, Mr. Holland has a son who's deaf, and he dedicates this opus to his son. And as the opus is going on, he looks right at his son as he's leading the thing, and he mouths the words, I love you. And when he did that, I just broke, because I'd never heard it. My poor daughter's freaking out. Her dad's going nuts in the, in the aisle. And, but I came home and I wrote my lament. I said, son, I love that name conjuring up all within me, a serene splendor that takes your breath away. I haven't heard it in a while. In fact, I ache to say I can't remember when. Did he ever think it, mean it? Did son ever conjure up joy for him beyond my birth? I thought I was over it, but now perhaps more pained when reflection is the brightest. I thought I was over it until someone dedicates an opus to his son and I forever remain estranged. And then I remember my son, who conjured up everything for me for a few brief moments, now gone until the dawn sinks. Oh, sing, O oh soul, play the notes, resonate and play, for this is what you were made for. This is my beloved son, my son, my son. Well, let me come to the center of the psalm in verses... Uh, I should go next slide. Three and four. And it looks a little bit like a curse, but in reality, it's a divine warning to the adversaries. So the poet understands God is just, and you reap what you sow. And God custom makes judgment to fit the crime. And so. He says, if you keep going this direction, the judgment from God is arrows, sharpened arrows that cut. See, all other weapons strike close, but arrows strike from afar, and that's the way it is with slander. What is said in Rome kills in Syria. And slander not only cuts, it wounds deeply, it sees and burns. And the wood of the broom tree made excellent coal, and though its embers were extinguished externally, they still burned on the inside. And so what this is, it's a harsh word, but it's an invitation to repent, to say no to one life and to say yes to the new. So God's arrows of judgment are aimed at provoking repentance, and the pain of judgment could turn them from their deceitful and violent ways to joining the pilgrim of peace. So as pilgrims, you know, we may never win the world, the nation, the company, your neighborhood, or your whole family. But the good news is, some will come. And Isaiah writes that in the days coming forth, the inhabitants of Kedar will sing a new song. And they'll shout for joy and give glory to God to declare his praise. And God's implacable enemies of Assyria and Egypt, there'll be a highway to Jerusalem, and they'll praise God. And as for my dad, time is a friend, and I didn't forever remain estranged to him, but it came long after I'd given up hope. The time came when he needed me to help him medically, and ironically, <laughs> he'd had five bypasses on his heart at 75 because he ate steak every night, and when he was 82, his carotid artery was blocked. And he called me, and he, he said he couldn't get a surgeon in L.A. to do it because he thought it was too dangerous at the age of 82. So he thought he was going to die. 
So I said, Dad, why don't you come up here? We'll take care of you. So my old buddy, Dennis Shin, is a Stanford grad. He worked at the Sequoia Hospital. He was a cardiologist, and they brought my dad up here. And as my dad got off the plane, his eyelid drooped. And as a surgeon, they knew every aspect of their body. He thought he was having a stroke. He gets into the hospital, and they do an angiogram. They find out he's 95% blocked. He was that close to death. And the surgeons treated him like the Surgeon General. We get to operate on Dr. Morgan. What a gift. And I remember they treated him like with just such holy kid gloves. Well, I was terrified for him to come into my world. He'd never been into my world in 20 years. Never heard me preach. Never hardly knew my daughters. So the operation's totally successful, and they don't give him a bill. And he'd never been loved like that before. And then after surgery, he's having me write thank you notes. Now, he's never done anything like this his whole life. He's having me thank nurses and the head of the hospital, on and on. And he's convalescing at my house, and I'm in charge of a men's retreat of 500 men at Mount Hermon the next weekend. And Emily says, you're not leaving him here, but you go there. <laughs> so I said, Dad, you're kind of well enough to go home, or you can stay, you can come with me. He goes, we're not camping, are we? I said, no, Dad, we're not camping. He goes, I want to be with you. I go, you do? And our speaker was Michael Green, who taught 15 years at Cambridge. Funny, most gifted evangelist in the whole English empire. And he's, we're alone with my dad for three days in Carmel, and they're laughing, having conversations, and I'm just freaking out. And all of a sudden, my dad opens up, and he starts talking to me how bad his marriage was, and, and then he just says this question on the blue. So why did the Jews reject Jesus? I can't even talk. And we get to the retreat. There's 500 men praying for him. And uh, Saturday, there's these seminars, and I'm teaching one of them. There's 10 of them. I says, Dad, which one do you want to go to? I says, I want to go to yours. I go, oh, great. I'm teaching on lament and talking about the death of my kids and how lament helped me process pain. Sunday morning, Michael Green stands up, and he says, now, does anybody here accept Christ? Do you have the courage to stand up? He looks right at my dad, and he starts crying. And my dad doesn't stand up. So I thought it's over, and I go to my room, and then Michael Green is the kind of evangelist. You know when you get the fish close to the boat, what do you use a net? You get a net to get them on board? He doesn't use a net. He just uses a gaff, and he th throws them on board. So he just gets right in my dad's face. Wendell, when are you going to accept Jesus? And my dad goes, well, right now? As I'm walking into the room, they're praying. And he holds out his hand to me. He says, I just accepted the Lord. First time I've ever seen a tear in his, in his eyes. And on the way home, Michael Green puts his arm around us both because we're headed to the airport. He says, now you two have to get reacquainted, won't you? <laughs> and uh, my friend had to announce it at uh, breakfast, and he started crying, and they thought somebody died. But then he said, Dr. Morgan accepted the Lord, and the place just broke out in praise. So... Being an obedient son, I had to write a Thanksgiving poem. So I'll share this with you to close. Oh, Father, you heard the cry of a boy who first learned to weep over his father when he sat silent in the face of love. You put his tears in a bottle and hid them. Years later, you called him to Mount Moriah, but he thought not in vain if the sweet scent would place the son in the father's heart. He descended the mount, clung to his father, looked into his face, but saw only silence. The boy went into the desert to forget. He sang in the cave of Adullam, and there he found men, the discontent and the fatherless. 
They grew strong together and became his mighty men of renown. He loved them. They would be his father. In all his travels, the son thanked his father for such a wound that forged this new family. But whenever he returned to Ziklag under the darkness of night, he heard his daughters cry, Daddy, he knew he could not forget. Then God remembered the boy, visited him with his father. Take now your father, the one you love, and journey to the land of Moriah. They journeyed quietly up the mountain. The father asked, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb? The son was silent. Then he raised his eyes and heard them singing, all the men of renown, with the lamb on their shoulders. Those thousand eyes broke into the father's heart. The father wept, took the lamb, and became a son. O father, how great are your wonders. You heard the cry of a boy, kept his tears in a bottle. I will never forget. We were in Carmel. My dad bought a sweater for my mother. Never done that before. And when he went home, my mother said, what did you do to him? (laughs) He wanted to be intimate at 82 and uh, like a little puppy dog. So these psalms shape your life. And when you find that your story's in them, it gives you language to connect with God and with one another like nothing else. So may God bless you on your journey. Amen. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.